This is an AMI podcast. You're listening to the Kitchen Confession Podcast with Chef Mary Mammoliti. I'm Mary Mammoliti, host of Kitchen Confession. As the show winds down, my co-producer Matt and I, we wanted to take a moment to reflect on some of the most impactful moments of nearly 150 episodes of Kitchen Confession. Matt, my friend, do you think that Kitchen Confession has left an impression on your culinary life? Undoubtedly. Uh, I am a much better home cook than when we started the show uh, over five years ago. I remember not long actually uh, after we started the show, um, Mary, and you, and you brought me on uh, working on some technical stuff. And we had a few production meetings. And it didn't take long, I think, before I was asking some, you know, sort of pointed questions about the scripts and about the guests. And you sort of just like leaned in. You're like, Matt, do, do you cook? <laughs> <laughs> I remember this. And, and sort of realized that not only, you know, does this guy know audio recording and podcasting and, you know, whatever, and, but he also uh, is, is a fair cook. But after nearly 150 episodes later, I've picked up a lot of tips from some really talented people that have really changed the way that uh, I cook at home and the way that I shop. But I think it's also been really interesting to hear so many different perspectives on food, just the different stories and the different approaches that we've heard about. You know, food for some people, it's about culture and reconnecting to their roots by making a modern twist on an old classic. Or for Mm -hmm. some people, it's about business and entrepreneurship. We've talked to food scientists and the way that they approach things is, is very different. And you know, we've, we've heard stories as well of just like, you know, first dates and things like that. It all revolves around food. So I think it's been really cool to hear um, all those many, many stories. And through that, I've, I've definitely changed my attitude and my approach to food as well in, in terms of things like plant-based cooking. So yeah, it's, it's definitely made a big impact on my life working on the show. What about you, Mary? I have definitely, definitely learned a lot from the show and from our guests. I mean, what a lot of people don't know is that you and I, we are big foodies. Well, most of our production meetings, as you know, Mary, is half the time just swapping food stories and ideas. And maybe by the end of it, we might get around to actually talking about the podcast. It's true. It's true. It's it's the (laughs) truth. What people don't know is that every single episode, you and I... We'll talk after the interview, once the episode is edited, and we'll share stories of what we've learned from that episode, what it meant to us, what what tips we took away from it, and what we want to try. So every episode to us was inspiring. It did leave an impression on both of us. I, I truly believe it because we always did talk about it after. But there was so there's so much more when you talk about sharing a meal and when you talk about food memories. And I think learning all of that and hearing everyone's food memories is something that I don't think I'll ever forget. Just it left such an impact on me. Um, look, I'm oh my gosh, I'm getting emotional. Uh, <laughs> Matt, I didn't expect this to happen. Uh, it's just been such an experience. I, I've learned so much, like you said. You know, I just want to say as well that we're we're so grateful for all the people that have spent their time sharing these stories and and these ideas and the inspiration with us. So um, with that in mind, let's take a look at our top 10 most impactful episodes of Kitchen Confession. Mitchell Stern is the co-founder at Station Cold Brew Coffee, and his interview is one that I can still remember vividly from back in 2018. Back then, he predicted the surge in products containing CBD within the food and beverage industry. 
believe it or not, all that has come into fruition. Here's Mitchell's prediction. I've become like a huge beverage nerd. So I'm reading multiple, you know, internet sources on the daily reading about different product launches in the US and I go to beverage trade shows and most of my colleagues are working in beverage now and it's I'm trying to understand you know what the future looks like for beverage and you know for example how cannabis might spend like play in that in that you know what that was going to be a question my next question how does cannabis play a part in this because it is that's all everyone's talking about right now for sure and for good reason I mean it's 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 an industry that is going to change uh, all other peripheral industries because it can be implemented into literally anything and it affects banking and hospitality and you know it really does affect every single other um, business out there and so from a beverage perspective um, I believe that I believe that there is a large opportunity in beverage for cannabis um, beverages are something that people consume every day. And I believe that in three to five years, you will see every product you see on the shelf now, you will be able to buy it with THC and or CBD. THC is the psychoactive ingredient. So that's what will make you feel high or euphoric. Uh, CBD is the non-psychoactive ingredient that uh, is being sort of separated often now because it's become, uh, you know, a painkiller. It's good for anxiety. It's good for depression. It's it's actually the the ingredient or the thing in cannabis um, that uh, is proven, and there's a lot of studies out there uh, to help with those with those things. Um, so it's become sort of a medicine, um, and I believe that the opportunity is in CBD, and I think that CBD will play well in the health and wellness beverage category. You'll be able to go into a bar in the future, and you'll be able to get a red wine that is alcoholic or a red wine that is non-alcoholic with CBD and or THC. What? I I firmly believe that. Or you'll be able to get a kombucha that has THC in it. And I I firmly believe that that is the future of like... Okay, that buzzes me out. Kombucha with the... (laughs) Right? Yeah. There's so much, so much opportunity for innovation and development. And that's actually what gets me excited. Carly Bodrug is a blogger, cookbook author, and the founder of Plant U. Carly's scrappy low-waste recipes really got me excited about all the possibilities for reducing food waste and saving money and boosting the flavor in my cooking all at the same time. So here she is with a few of those ideas. I think like we just buy in such a capitalist society, we buy such excess and a lot of it goes to waste. Basically 50% of the food you're buying and I don't know about you, but like grocery prices, oh my goodness, are ridiculous insane right now i can't i I can't even think about it without breaking out into hives because i can't believe right so it's hard to comprehend how much we're wasting it given the current um the current price of groceries and then on top of that food waste is one of the major contributors to greenhouse gases because it then has to go into a landfill it takes a long time to break down So um, along with being plant-based, I'm very passionate about helping people reduce their food waste. And one day I had made an orange peel candy recipe and I threw it up on Instagram and the video went just crazy viral. So I started a little video series called Scrappy Cooking on my social media. We've since done like 60 episodes and it's really just about repurposing those commonly wasted foods or ingredients. One of the big ones that people often don't think about and is broccoli. 
And oftentimes we're growing broccoli by weight and the stems are actually completely edible. So if you're throwing out the stems, you're throwing out basically half of your broccoli, very nutrient dense and extremely delicious. All you have to do is peel out the outer hard skin. You can make broccoli stem fries. You can throw it into your stir fry, prepare just how you with the florets. And it's extremely versatile and delicious. Potato skins are a huge one that you can do so many things with. So if you're making mashed potatoes, you don't want skins in your mashed potatoes. You've got a ton of potato peels. We talked earlier about air fryer. This is my favorite thing to do. It drizzle a little olive oil, a little salt, a little nutritional yeast on those. Pop them in the air fryer for like eight minutes at 450. You have the most delicious potato peel crisps. They're like a chip pineapple peel, uh, something like that you want to, you're not going to eat, but it's great for making like um, fermented beverages or even pineapple skin vinegar. Strawberry top vinegar is also very popular one. It creates this beautiful um, bright red strawberry infused vinegar. So it's a great way to do it as well. Desiree Nielsen is a registered dietitian and a cookbook author who back in 2019, she inspired me to incorporate more plant-based meals into my diet. And honestly, I have never looked back. Here's what Desiree had to say. So for Eat More Plants, what was your inspiration behind that book? So I had just come off filming The Urban Vegetarian. People were asking for a cookbook. And, you know, the recipes on that show were designed to show, to make people rethink what they believe vegetarian food to be. We wanted to show people how delicious it was. And so the recipes run the gamut from like chia puddings to, you know, butternut squash lasagna that had four pounds of cheese in it. And (laughs) so I, I wanted to put my dietitian hat on for this book without leaving my foodie hat off. So I wanted to show people what truly healing, therapeutic, plant-based nutrition could be like. So it is, you know, low sugar, completely gluten-free, all whole food while being truly delicious. It's so important for me because people might look at how I eat and see the mounds of kale on my plate and go, you know, oh, well, don't you miss X, Y, or Z? Like, don't you feel deprived? And to me, healthy eating is not anywhere close to deprivation. It is really, for me, a celebration of the diversity of like beautiful, fresh plant foods that we have available, but also a celebration of your body. Like when you really love your body, you wanna give it what it needs. And so Eat More Plants is about giving your body what it needs so that it can run so well that you feel amazing. Farmer Lee Jones is an expert in sustainable farming with innovative planting and harvesting techniques. And he was the first farmer to win a James Beard Award. He's also the author of The Chef's Garden, one of the most beautiful cookbooks I've ever seen, and it showed me how vegetables can easily be the star of any dish. Here's Lee describing how the symbiotic relationship between farmers and chefs over the last 40 years has led to not only better flavor, but better nutrition. Kind of talk a little bit about the Culinary Vegetable Institute and what happens there. You know, once we realized that chefs were a good sounding board for us. We knew that it was a symbiotic relationship where we could learn from each other. And so my dad actually had the idea and he scratched it out on a paper, on the back of a paper bag one day and he presented it to the family. And he said, you know, I think we need to build a place where the chefs can come. They can stay overnight with overnight accommodation. We can go into the fields together. We can learn from each other. We can bring product back into a beautiful kitchen 
and let them be able to play and do menu development. And that was where the, the idea of the Culinary Vegetable Institute was born. And, you know, over the last 40 years, the three most important things chefs told us mm-hmm. was flavor was most important, flavor was second most important, and flavor was third most important. And so we've really gone about trying to naturally, rather than chemically, rather than genetic modification, which we don't use, don't believe in, look for getting the soils in balance and growing the, the best flavored vegetables we could. We had a hypothesis that by by working on improving the flavor that we were bringing the nutritional levels along. And I would challenge the listeners, Google what's going on with nutritional levels in vegetables over the last 50 to 60 years. I'll give you a little hint. Mm-hmm. From 1930 to 1980, they've gone down by 50%. And oh from 1980 to, two, to 2020, they're continuing to go down at an increasing rate. We produce more tons per acre than any other country in the world, yet we have the highest health care. We got off of that bandwagon. By losing the farm, it allowed us to rethink, relook, reconsider the way we were farming. And my dad had a saying that the only thing we're trying to do is get as good as the farmers were 100 years ago. In many ways, that's very true. Those statistics are shocking to me. What's even more exciting, though, is there's hope because... We're testing nutrient levels 300 to 500% higher than the USDA average. You can do that in your own garden, too. Oh, that's incredible. It's exciting. And, you know, we're racing towards a plant-based, plant-forward future. It's inevitable for our sustainability. I'm Mary Mamaliti, and you're listening to the Kitchen Confession Podcast. On today's episode, Matt and I take a moment to reflect on some of the most memorable and impactful moments from the last five years of the Kitchen Confession Podcast. Mark Cirillo is a food writer and author who had me question my dislike for pineapple on pizza. Okay, but only for a split second. And then he shared the history of where it originated and the toppings Canadian roots. Okay, this one to me is near and dear to my heart. Pineapple on pizza is blank. Canadian. Good answer. I would have said wrong, but... (laughs) You know that, right? Because that's another thing that that I discovered from the book. It was invented... It's Canadian? It was invented in Chatham, Ontario. Come on. It's in the book. It's invented in Chatham, Ontario by a Greek immigrant who owned a Chinese restaurant. Oh, that's a book in itself. He just died recently. And he said the reason why he thought of it is because at the Chinese, I mean, you're talking about like American style Chinese food. I mean, that's mm-hmm. probably not what they eat in China. But uh, but he said like they put a lot of pineapple in, in those dishes, in those kind of old fashioned, you know, Chinese restaurants that have a hundred things on the menu. And it just, mm-hmm. he said, like, that's what gave him the idea of putting pineapple on the pizza. I mean, well, God rest his soul, but but it was just <laughs> wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the thing. It, but this is the amazing thing, though. Do you remember there was this controversy, like, this, I think it was about a year or so ago, that the president of Iceland made a comment, like, it should be outlawed, just as a joke. But then it went completely yes. viral. Mary Oliviera came to Toronto in 2014, and she opened a chocolate shop to introduce the city to her hand-rolled Brazilian Brigadeiro. And if you don't know about Brigadeiro, they're a chocolate confection somewhere between fudge and a truffle. They're really incredible. And Mary shared with us the interesting story of their invention in the 40s. 
Brigadeiro is basically an exotic type of Brazilian chocolate confectionery that we hand roll everyone. It's the process of cooking sweetened condensed milk, a good quality of butter, cocoa powder, and chocolate, like pieces of chocolate that can go milk, dark, any percent of chocolate. Oh, yes to all of that. I know. Yeah. No, it's, it's like magical. There's a story behind the brigadeiro. Where did it come from? So basically, back in 1940, a guy called Eduardo Gomes Brigadeiro uh, decided to try to become a president in Brazil. And uh, basically, he had a few women who worked with him to help him with the election. And uh, one of the, the ladies decided to mix a few ingredients that was condensed milk, butter, and chocolate. And uh, they went to the street and said, hey, vote in Eduardo Gomez Brigadero. Would you like to try a treat? So the final of the story is he was not elected, <laughs> but the dessert became really, really famous <laughs> in the entire country. And they didn't have a name. It was just like chocolate balls. And they decided to took his last name, Brigadeiro, to give the name for the dessert. So basically, this is the story of the Brigadeiro. <laughs> That's incredible. I know, it's quite unique. <laughs> Opal Rowe is a self-taught patty reinventor and the founder of Stush Patties. So many food creators in Canada start out with just a craving and they can relate to her story of entrepreneurship and ingenuity. Here's Opal's origin story. Why did you choose the Jamaican patty to, to build your business around? You know, um, I, as I mentioned, I had another business. And one evening I came home late from work and I just wanted something tasty, but light, not too heavy because it was late. And then I realized I was creating a Jamaican patty. I was like, oh, I wish I had one in the fridge. But, and then I thought, but the ones that I know, it's not what I'm craving. I'm craving something where I could taste the chicken, I could taste the pieces of chicken wrapped in pastry and have it with a glass of wine. And then I realized, I don't really know such a patty. So I went on a hunt to find one. And I started scourging Google, gourmet patties, that sort of thing, like everywhere. And I thought, gosh, there must be someone or, you know, who's doing this. Um, and I couldn't find anything. And it, I became more obsessed with it as days go by. It's like, Surely there must be one. And then I decided, you know something, I'm going to make one. If there's none, I'm going to make one. And I just didn't make it for myself. I thought that this was lacking in the marketplace and I'm going to make them. And I thought, hmm, there's only one challenge. I don't know how to make patties. I've never made patties before. I've never even seen patties made before. You've never so, made them before? Never, ever made patties before. Never seen anyone in my life made patties before. No. That's incredible. Okay, so you started on the hunt to try and develop this patty. What was that process like? Of course, I had a full-time job, a business then. So it was more like, okay, doing some research about patties, that sort of thing. Like, And, you know, the filling, I wasn't really too worried about the filling because I consider myself a good cook, but I'd never made pastry before. I didn't even own a rolling pin. I didn't even own a mixer. Oh, I'm loving right? this. <laughs> There's a little more about learning about the pastry now. But I wasn't looking for like a recipe that I could copy or anything like this, right? In my opinion, rightly or wrongly, if I'm going to do this, I need to make it my own. I need to understand what I'm doing. So it was more about learning as much as I could about pastry, learning about 
the different types of flowers there's out there. I didn't even know there were different types of flowers, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. Um, the different types of fat. One thing I knew from, from the get-go was that I wanted to have vegan options because I knew this was lacking in the market. And, um, you know, I love natural food, right? So I don't even see vegan as, you know, just about vegan. I see this natural food. The first thing that came to me, okay, so your, your, your pastry has to be vegan. So don't even try start testing anything else. Don't even think it. And so I started learning about fats, the pros and cons of a different types of fats, flour, that sort of thing, understanding the different types of pastry, whether it's short crust pastry or flaky pastry or that sort of pastry like. And just basically self-learning and practicing. Practice, 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 practice. Six Nations chef Rich Francis is a culinary activist and the first Indigenous chef to compete on Top Chef Canada. I think it was important to hear Rich's take on modern Indigenous cuisine and identity because it challenged what so many others feel about food. Listen to what he has to say here about the revival of a food identity without the colonial palate. So let's talk a little bit about Indigenous cuisine and the culture. Mm-hmm. How has the erasure of Indigenous culture affected all those culinary traditions? The main thing now is that people have kind of covered that up with something called Canadian cuisine. And for me, as an Indigenous chef, I'm still trying to identify what Indigenous food is for myself. So I'm still trying to go past the colonial genocide that happened to the Indigenous people that kind of almost wiped it out, but it didn't. That's where Bannock started. So there's that Indigenous colonial food system right there that people know it's the bannock it's the indian taco but that came out of out of trauma out of trying to wipe us out and that's what kind of what we came up with to ultimately survive there's a misconception that people don't really consider and that's like the pre-contact the post-contact like the pre-residential the post-residential school you know at one point indigenous food we didn't eat food for pleasure you know what i mean It was to sustain us, it was to give thanks, and then we kind of moved on. Colonialism is what kind of messed that up for us. You know, the the five white gifts, you know, like it was the the, the sugar, the salt. The the flour, the sugar. You know, all all of that. And so our bodies were never able to process that. The result of that has become this epidemic called obesity and diabetes in ourselves. And so the whole philosophy behind my food is, to go past that, we're in 2020, post-COVID now, and we're using Indigenous foods in, in a different way now. So right now, it, chefs aren't aren't inspiring me. Like there are a few, a handful of chefs that are, but right now it's like the food collectors, it's the elders, uh, it's the stories from the land. That's where my inspiration comes from. That's what gets me up in the morning. That's what I'm writing about. You know, again, the stuff that you're not going to find in a history book or a cookbook, that, that's the thing that, that's really fueling my, uh, my passion right now. I kind of like the hashtag cooking without borders in terms of Indigenous food. So I, I kind of fuse a lot. I could Haudenosaunee or, you know, the Haida or, you know, the Navajos or, you know, I'll, I'll, I like to fuse different regions together. But ultimately, it's very seasonal and very creator driven. Beverly Crandon is a sommelier and founder of the Spice Food and Wine Group. My chat with Beverly inspired me to think outside the box when it comes to wine and food pairings. So here's Beverly mixing things up. We are a group of people who are wine lovers um, and love food. We love 
we love exploring and trying new foods as well um, that maybe aren't necessarily uh, Caribbean. Um, so, you know, Thai, Vietnamese, but not the stuff that you see people order all the time, but like the, the hidden stuff that they, that people make at home when you go to your friend's house and then the cat yeah. pulls out something then wow, what's this? Um, and a lot of times too, like you're okay, we make something very similar in Guyana. You know, you, you find those things. Um, mm-hmm. so we're obsessed about food, we're obsessed about wine and we're obsessed about pairing the two together. But we also realize like, let's face it, our, our world, like, there's a lot of turmoil and um, tension when it comes to race relations, especially 2020 with George Floyd, and we saw the whole reckoning. And I, I can't, I don't have the power to make new laws and force you to do something by injecting something in your head, but I can take what I'm good at and my skill and create an environment where you and I will sit down and you'd be like, oh, you know, my, my aunt used to make something like this. And oh, well, my aunt makes it this way. And we find that there's more similarities between us as there are versus differences. Like when I take a look at a lot of the foods in the Caribbean that we eat, I see that there's influences obviously from Africa. Then you get some influences from Europe, like when the British came and so on, and the Dutch and some of the dishes that they used to make. And you get influences from... Um, the indigenous native peoples who were on the Caribbean land when we were enslaved and brought there. And so my my food isn't just, it's just Caribbean. It has so many different influences in it. So if I can take my skill and get people to sit down who look differently from different cultures, different backgrounds, and then they start to see the same sameness and they start to have conversations and they understand there's not that much difference between you and I, that may make one person who had a view of a particular race of being this, change it and have a new perspective and see that there's way more similarities to me and that person from that particular race. Chef Michael Hunter is a cookbook author, wild game hunter, and the owner of Antler Kitchen and Bar in Toronto. In his interview, Michael told us how a tongue-in-cheek sign slogan, Venison is the New Kale, earned him a protractive visit from some of Toronto's animal activists. But we actually learned a lot about the ethics of hunting and conservation from Michael, and this episode inspired me to go out that summer and get a fishing license for myself. Here's Michael's response to some myths. Well, um, one thing that people don't know is that trophy hunting is actually illegal in Canada and the United States. So you can't just kill an animal to cut its head off and put it on your wall. And it's actually a very serious uh, offense. So everything that's hunted, you have to use that animal. So, you know, 99.9% of hunters are uh, extremely ethical, extremely moral, and take a lot of pride in what they do. And, you know, people do it for food. And it's hard. And they're cute. And, you know, they're beautiful creatures, right? And all animals, they're, they're really beautiful. And it's, it was difficult for me the first time I shot a deer because I could I was bow hunting and I could see the steam the steam coming out of the nostrils and they're just these big beautiful majestic creatures and it's emotional, um, but at the end of the day I just it's what I believe in and it's I think it's a healthier alternative for my family and I don't buy meat from the store hardly ever mm-hmm. really just an alternative way to provide for your family. The thing that's really hard for people to understand is that hunting actually pays for conservation. You know, wetland projects or forestry projects and things like that. As hunters, all the organizations that, you know, we belong to and that our licenses are that we legally have to have to hunt, those dollars the government collects actually goes back into the conservation of of habitat and the actual animals themselves. Um, 
and, and you know that the killing is for fun it, it's not for fun it's actually you know really difficult but it's really just the connection with your food the connection with your friends and family you know i bring my family my wife and my kids out out, out into the the forest and fields and lakes with me um, and we take part as a family and that's that's a real uh, bonding experience for us and we all learn where our food comes from so there's a lot more to it than just what people think. What do you want people to take away or to learn from your cookbook? I think really just to look around them and see, you know, a lot of the things in the cookbook, they're, they're from the city or and they're from Ontario, but they're, you know, they translate to really anywhere in Canada and a lot of the United States. So for me, if people can just start recognizing what's edible and wild around them, you know, that's a win for me. Um, you know, if people try any of the recipes with game and they, they've never cooked with game, you know, that would be huge for me. It really inspires me to, you know, teach people, you know, a little bit more about where their food comes from. Um, and if, you know, people gain a little bit more respect for for animals or for hunting or for fishing or for where their food comes from, you know, that that's really just what inspired me to write the book. It's that time. We've reached the end of another show. Did we get your stomach growling? Head over to kitchenconfession.com for more recipes and foodie finds. Plus, you can check out ami.ca forward slash kitchen confession for all the latest on the podcast. Be sure to leave a rating and review so we can keep bringing you more episodes you'll love. Our producer and editor is Matt Agnew, and I'm your host, Mary Mammolini. Thanks for listening. 